Well, friends, I want you to stand up for 30 seconds, and I say 30. You've been a while since you stand, stretch, and uh, you know, sit down again. Okay, you might have uh, stretched enough now, so sit on down. Uh, let me just, uh, if I can, uh, you know, embarrass someone quickly. Where's Chris Shaw? Where are you, mate? Chris. Great to have Chris with us. Chris is not, has, was a regular here for many years, is living uh, outside of, us, of Sydney these days, and great to have you back with us this morning. Um, you know, fun fact, Spiro Cassis, who's coming with Compassion next week, he and I went through kindergarten together, and then all schools, he's a great guy. It'll be great to have him here with us next week. Uh, but let's uh, look, strap in, and see what God's got for us as we come to Hebrews 13 together. Now, can I just say, I imagine most of us remember the late Kerry Packer, uh, you know, one of Australia's most powerful media tycoons. Now, no one could ever accuse Kerry Packer of being ungrateful. Uh, back in late 2000, uh, his loyal helicopter pilot, Nicholas Ross, gave his boss a kidney that saved his life, or at least extended it for five years. Uh, in a Sydney Morning Herald report, the Packers praised Mr Ross for his bravery and generosity in donating the kidney. We as a family would like to thank Nicholas Ross, who has been a close personal friend of my father for close to 20 years, for an extraordinary act of kindness and generosity. Uh, James Packer, Kerry's son, said shortly after the operation, he is someone who my family owes a debt of gratitude forever. Uh, that debt of gratitude owed to Mr Ross came in the form of a $3.3 million mansion at Church Point overlooking Pittwater, probably three times of cost now, but uh, for the gift of a kidney that gave Kerry Packer five extra years of life. Mr Ross was praised by the family for his extraordinary act of kindness and generosity, and they felt they owed him a debt of gratitude forever. What a pity that apparently he wasn't as grateful to the one who gave not his kidney, but his own son to die in his place so that he could live forever without any sickness. God has sent his son Jesus, that's what Hebrews has been reminding us, not to give his kidney, but to give his life for you and for me. Now that's what you call an act of extraordinary kindness and generosity that deserves our praise and gratitude forever. Well, that's what we're going to be thinking about as we come to the end of the book of Hebrews this morning. Uh, so let's pray as we do that. Our gracious God, we give you thanks for all that you have been teaching us and reminding us of as we've worked through this book together. We thank you for who you are and who your son, the Lord Jesus, is and all that you have done for us. Father, we are those who owe you a debt of gratitude forever. Help us as we reflect on that this morning to see that more clearly in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, can I just say the whole of Hebrews has been reminding us what God has done for us through Jesus. Uh, because Jesus gave his life, because he died in our place, everything we have ever done wrong or ever will do wrong in the future it has been forgiven. God holds nothing against us and will never hold it against us. Our consciences are cleansed from guilt and shame. He hasn't given us a few extra years. He's given us life that lasts forever without sickness, sadness or pain. He's brought us into his family and 
given us his entire kingdom as our inheritance, not a $3.3 million shack. See, Jesus is greater. He is more powerful. He is more loving. He's more kind. He is more patient. He's more forgiving. And it's no surprise then that the writer begins the conclusion of his letter, which actually starts in chapter 12, verse 28. We saw it briefly last week with the words, let us be grateful. And then as grateful people, let us offer to God acceptable worship. Now, the first question I want to ask this morning, then, what is acceptable worship? I think it's kind of an important question. If we're urged to do it, we want to make sure we know what it actually is. I mean, there's been kind of, I think, great confusion in in many churches about this one. I, I saw on the website of one prominent Sydney church the line, make sure you're in church this weekend for passionate worship and inspiring teaching. And it raises a few questions. Does worship only happen in church? Must worship be passionate to be acceptable? Is worship different to teaching? Uh, Don Carson, some of you will know the name, has uh, brought together a few key characters and written a book called Worship by the Book. That is by the Bible. And in it, he makes the point that people have often become much more interested in the feeling of things. And he says that it has often led people to kind of drift away from a church of uh, excellent preaching and teaching to one with excellent music because they claim that there's better worship there. Uh, Now, I love music. I appreciate good music in church. I'm even willing to clap with it sometimes. Uh, But we should enjoy singing our praise to God and, and reminding each other how great he is. I'm thankful to God, can I say, for our musicians who humbly serve us in this way every week. But is that what Hebrews understands as acceptable worship? Well, let me say it doesn't exclude it, but that's clearly not where the focus lies in Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews 13, you might have noticed, is a, is a, a chapter of commands. Uh, there's, a, there's a series of them in just the first few verses. Look at it there uh, from verse 1. Verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Verse 2, show hospitality to strangers. Verse 3, remember those who are in prison and the mistreated. Verse 4, everyone on a marriage. Verse 5, keep your life free from love of money. Be content. You notice that acceptable worship is not primarily what we do when we gather here each Sunday. Acceptable worship is the way we live every part of our lives every day. Every thought, word, deed is an expression of what we worship. Uh, In chapter 13, worship of God cannot be separated from serving other people. So in these verses, the writer gives a snapshot of what the community life of our church should look like. Now, I've kind of grouped them into four areas that you can see on uh, the back of your outline there. Uh, Have a look, though. Let's just pick it up again from verse 1 of chapter 13. He says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. See, if you are grateful to God for what he has done for you, then you'll be genuinely concerned for God's people. I mean, Jesus himself has actually set the bar for us. 
I mean, remember earlier in Hebrews chapter 2 that Jesus, the Son of God, was not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. He identified fully with us by sharing our flesh and blood. He established the most significant of relationships with us by giving his life to bring us into his father's household. There should be a genuine family love for each other that overrides personality or status or backgrounds. Now, this isn't that kind of mechanical love that some Christians like to resort to, you know, when they say, well, I don't really like that person, but I'll love them because God has told me to. And the writer actually uses a word here that expresses real affection for one another. Now, one of the distinguishing features of the church was how they loved each other. Keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. And notice that love should especially be extended to those in need. I mean, here the writer especially mentions hospitality to strangers and care for those who are persecuted. Now, there may be other Christians, these may be other Christians that were unknown, but it's probably just included any traveller who needed a place to stay and a meal. And notice the reason that is given here might sound a little strange, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. I mean, the writer actually seems to recall the time when Abraham welcomed three strangers back in Genesis chapter 18. Uh, who turned out to be God's messengers to affirm his blessing upon Abraham. And so as I look around at this congregation, I rejoice because I see people and families who are hospitable. Uh, And there are probably more than I realise. Things go on that I don't even know about, sometimes hear about a long time later. But even if I I reflect back, I remember when Leonie and I first started in ministry, one of the church families here who didn't know Leonie and I very well, took us in to live with them for two months while we waited for accommodation. We've had people here from church have Christians from other states living with them so that they could be close to a sick child spending lengthy times in Prince of Wales Hospital. I mean, recently a a single lady from our church recovering from surgery stayed with a couple from our church so that she wasn't alone in her recovery. People here spend hours providing meals to those who need them or to provide for different events we run. There are guys who look after um, people from the jail at Long Bay. They're all acts of genuine love shown in hospitality. More seriously, persecution and imprisonment for believing in Jesus is not a big problem for us. But they were then for the Hebrews. And they still are for many of our brothers and sisters around the world. How do you feel when you hear some of the horrific stories we hear of Christians being persecuted in places around the world? Do you stop and pray? Do you send money to Christian organisations that are trying to help them? Do you work out whether you can go to where they are to support them somehow? Because I know people who have done all three of those things. As Christians, we're urged to remember and care for them in the way we would like to be if we ourselves were suffering. Well, next, the author turns his attention to marriage and to sexual immorality. Uh, Verse 4, see it? Let marriage be held in honour among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. 
See, it's not, notice here, it's not just for the married to honour marriage. Everyone is to honour marriage. That means the married, the single, the widow, the divorced, by all. And the way that it's honoured by all, uh, the, oh, sorry, the way it's by honoured is by not defiling the marriage bed. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Sex is for marriage. Married people will honour marriage and keep it pure by enjoying sex with one another, but not with anyone else. Adultery or sex outside of marriage defiles marriage. It treats God's good gift with contempt. If you're single, you will probably struggle with sexual temptation. But you too are called to honour marriage by remaining sexually pure and by encouraging others, including married people, to remain sexually pure. And don't crack under sexual temptation. Don't put yourself in positions to crack under sexual temptation. Do things in groups. Don't allow yourselves to be alone in private situations that are dangerous. And before Leonie and I were married, uh, we used to read the Bible and pray together. It was a, a very good antidote for sexual temptation. If you have given in to sexual temptation, you need to also remember that there is forgiveness. You can and will be forgiven completely. But of course, that also means change. I mean, no point asking for forgiveness and then willfully continuing old habits. If you're married, take your marriage absolutely seriously and stick to it. And if you're single, take the danger of sexual immorality absolutely seriously and flee from it. Marriage has been given to us by God. And in a culture that has completely trashed marriage, we must continue to honour and value it God's way. Well, another way that we express our gratitude and worship of God is our attitude to money. See verse 5. Keep your life free from money, also free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, this temptation is probably the most subtle and probably claims the most victims, particularly, can I say, here in the eastern suburbs where we're surrounded by wealth. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. See, as you gradually acquire more things, you gradually find your security in those things and you lack contentment with what you have. It's dangerous. I mean, contentment is a great thing. But so many people live lives of discontent, including Christians. But God has said he will never leave us or forsake us. We can be content with what we have in the strength of our helper. If you want to know if you're content, start giving your money away. Give it to things that will continue to build the kingdom that will never be shaken. So that's the smart investment. Giving it away is a great cure for love of money. Well, finally, Christian leaders, Christian teaching, also have a role to play in our worship. Uh, but their role is not like the ritual sacrifices of the priests 
uh, of the old covenant. Look at verse 7. He says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. The writer tells this Christian community to remember their leaders, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now notice here that the defining feature of these leaders is that they were speakers of the word of God. Uh, It's important because it's the the word of God faithfully preached that brings a Christian community into existence and it's the word of God, the Bible, that shapes that community. I mean, there are all kinds of leaders. We've heard about them this morning as Kieran's prayed for us. We have pastors and growth group leaders and youth leaders and kids' church leaders and Jesus Club leaders. There's all kinds of leaders, aren't there? But what's important is that they lead by teaching the word of God and doing it faithfully, handling it rightly, because not all do. Any teaching that takes us away from what the Bible teaches takes us away from Christ and his unshakable kingdom. See, that is the point of verse 9 following here. That's why false teachers are such an abomination, because they lead people away from Christ and into hell. See, the Bible is as fresh and as relevant and powerful today as it has ever been. I mean, the fact that Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever means that we can be as confident about trusting him today as the readers of Hebrews 2,000 years ago could be. So pray for those who teach the Bible to us, that they will faithfully teach us as they should. And in addition to teaching, they should also lead by example there in the second part of verse 7. See, our leaders who teach us the word of God are to exemplify living by faith. They ought to be able to say with great humility, do as I say and do as I do. That's right, isn't it? And we want leaders who will practice what they preach, who will lead both by teaching and example. Thank and pray for our leaders who do that. But remember that the command here is for the whole church. What are are we all to do? Verse 7, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. You see, leaders aren't expected to be more godly than non-leaders. They're expected to set an example so that we can imitate them. They're not perfect, so don't nitpick or consider so as to tear them down. But notice their faith in Jesus and the direction of their lives as a result, and imitate them. Well, if you look a little further on in verse 17, he has more to say about leaders. So let's just pick it up, just cast your eyes down a little further, because he says in verse 17, leaders have authority. See verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, this is not one we like to teach to our own congregations, really. It's kind of uncomfortable. But we equally shouldn't ignore any part of God's word. And of course, can I say, authority can be abused and misused. And it's right to be wary of giving any one person too much authority. And Jesus has taught us and modelled for us exactly what Christian leadership is to be like. It's about serving others. 
if you're a leader in the church or you want to be, you must be in it for others. But as Christians, we're people who submit to God's rule and to the people who have been given authority over us. Our leaders are not perfect. They won't get everything right, but faithful leaders are in it for our good and we are to submit to their leadership. You see, that's the reason given for our submission here. Look at verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. See, genuine Christian leaders are concerned for the good of the whole church. My primary concern has always been and should always be for your relationship with God. Even now, if you haven't sorted out your relationship with God, let me plead with you to do that today. That's what we care about. There's nothing more important for you and to me. Be concerned about your heart. And that's what the author is saying in verse 9. I mean, he, he warned earlier in the letter not to have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from God. Remember, we, we talked about that. But the grace that strengthens our hearts is the death of Jesus that cleanses the conscience and the heart. That's the real food that we need to eat. It's also the true sacrifice. Well, that brings me to the next point, so let's pick it up there in verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice of sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. I mean, the religion of Judaism is bound up in the ritual of animal sacrifice for the payment and removal of sin. Uh, the carcass of the animal was burned up outside the Israelite camp or city. But as Hebrews has been at pains to point out, animal sacrifice was a temporary measure that didn't ultimately work. Its purpose was to point people forward to the true sacrifice that really worked the death of Jesus on the cross. See, that is our altar. And like the dead animal carcasses, Jesus was killed. He was sacrificed outside the city. In other words, Jesus was sacrificed outside the old order of things, outside of Judaism. If they wanted to hang on to Judaism, they couldn't share in the sacrifice of Christ. And so we, like them, have to follow Christ, to go to him outside the city. And when Christ was led out to Jerusalem to die, he suffered. He was ridiculed. But he did it for us, to give us a city that will last, an unshakable city. And so therefore, let us go out to him, even if it means being misunderstood or ridiculed or losing earthly wealth and security or even persecution. We go out to him in faithfulness and service because we're looking towards the future city that will never be shaken. And so here we're brought back again to this issue of worship. Uh, let me just pick it up from verse 15. Through him then, that is Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. 
Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now, we've just been reminded about the one true sacrifice of Christ for sin. But there are sacrifices that we're to make as well. Animal, animal sacrifice was at the heart of Israel's worship. Not only as a payment for sin, but they used to sacrifice animals often to express praise for all that God had done, all of his goodness. And here's the heart of worship, to honour someone or thing that is worthy of a gin. You are a gem. Thank you so much. Um, uh, where was I up to? Anyway, here's the heart of worship. Anybody? Croissant? Pancakes? I didn't get pancakes. Anyway. Here's the heart of worship, to honour something or thing that is worthy of honour. Uh, the old English word was worthship. It's about the worthiness of the object. For Christians, only God is truly worthy of all possible honour. And so we're to offer continually to God a sacrifice, not of animals, but of praise, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. If the greatest command given to humanity is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, as Jesus himself claimed in Matthew 22, then it follows that the greatest sin, the most fundamental sin, is to not love the Lord your God with all your heart or your soul or your mind. See, we can't give to God all the glory that is due to his name if we're full of ourselves or if we have pathetic visions of our own greatness and independence. See, true worship actually emerges from my whole being to this whole God. We offer a sacrifice of praise, not a sacrifice of sheep. We offer up ourselves, according to verse 16. This body of ours that walks and talks and relates and interacts with other people, is now completely devoted to God. Every decision in your day, every day, is made so as to honour and praise his name. See, here is what true worship is. First, a sacrifice of praise from our lips, that is, we verbally acknowledge and testify to the greatness of God. And secondly, a sacrifice of giving. We give ourselves to doing good to others, to caring for others and helping those in need. And we give of our wealth by sharing what we have with those in need. Now, let's face it, all that we have has been given to us by God anyway. And so we can use it to honour him or we can use it selfishly. We must demonstrate the relationship that we have with God. We, the way we live should reflect his character. That's how we worship him. Okay, well, that brings us almost to the end of what the writer calls a brief word of exhortation, like my, my brief word this morning. Anyway, he has just a few concluding comments and a request for prayer uh, before a benediction that is a blessing that focuses us finally on the main subject of his entire sermon, that is the all-surpassing greatness of Jesus. Now, he is the one to whom all glory belongs forever and ever. I'm going to say we entitled this entire series of talks Hold fast, uh, because it captures the essence of what the author is wanting to impress upon his audience. Hold fast to Jesus, because he is holy and completely supreme. When Hebrews gloriously takes us from eternity to eternity, Jesus, the eternal son, 
descended to us to be the high priest who offers the effective sacrifice for our forgiveness. And he is now ascended to sit at God's right hand in heaven to intercede for us so that we can be guaranteed that we will live with him for eternity. See, we have a faith that endures because the sacrifice of Jesus gives us a new heart that doesn't shrink back even in our struggles against sin and suffering. And we belong to his unshakable kingdom with an unshakable faith so that we can live holy lives when sin shakes us. And so how do we live now? We live to spur one another on to joyful, holy living in service of our God. Now, a number of years ago, there was a conference in Britain on comparative religions, that is, comparing the different religions. Uh, And experts from around the world came together and they were debating about uh, what belief, if any, was unique to Christianity. They started by uh, eliminating the possibilities. So, for example, the incarnation, Jesus coming to earth in human flesh. But other religions had different versions of gods appearing in human form. Uh, Another one of the things was a resurrection, but again, other religions had accounts of return from death. And so the debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis came into the room and he wanted to know what they were debating. And they told him that they were discussing what was Christianity's unique contribution among the world religions. Without hesitation, Lewis said, oh, that's easy, it's grace. And they discussed it for a bit, but pretty soon they realised that they had to agree. The idea of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seemed to go against every instinct of humanity. You know, the the Buddhist Eightfold Path or the Hindu doctrine of karma, uh, the Jewish covenant, the Muslim code of law, each of them offers a way to earn approval. But only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. The grace of God offers a salvation that no other religion can offer. And the Hebrews author wants them to understand not only the surpassing greatness of Jesus himself, but also the great salvation that he offers to us. And so therefore the complete foolishness and danger of going anywhere else, of drifting away from him. And so at the end of this wonderful letter, Hebrews calls us to action to make sure that we realise the importance of Jesus and to do whatever it takes to stick with him, to take drastic steps to ensure that our faith is never undermined by sin, to commit ourselves wholeheartedly to the Lord Jesus Christ and to recognise that the call to worship him should affect every part of our lives. Well, that's Hebrews. Let's pray. You are a great and merciful God loving in every way possible. You have sent your own son into the world to be our saviour and to make us your children. You call us family. And so, Father, we pray that we would be people whose lives offer to you completely and consistently sacrifices of praise with our whole lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing.